Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation podcast co-hosted by myself, Lenya Wilson, a black woman, and Alexandra Titalia, a white woman. Season, I'm the seasoning queen, first of all. I don't play those games. Come really, what do you season? Do you use a lot are you a lot of salt? Do you over salt? No, I'm not a salt person. So I so a couple of years ago, actually, I kind of stopped using salt as much. I used to use salt occasionally, but I love different spices. I will try different recipes and stuff. Yeah, I'm one of those people. And maybe because a lot of times I have the munchies anyway. So I'm like, oh, let's just try this. <laughs> like, Let's see what this is like. And so one of my specialties is like jerk salmon. My family loves mm. my jerk salmon. Mm-hmm. This is and the jerk seasoning doesn't overpower the salmon. Mm-mm. Mm. You gotta know how to do it and how to balance it because I. It's very complimentary, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. I love it's jerk. Really good. All right, so AB, you're gonna let me know what now that we're not in like professor former student mode. You're gonna tell me what AB stands for. So my name is actually Angel Brittany. But when I was, yeah, so when I was in college, my friends were like, that's too damn long and we're not calling you that. (laughs) (laughs) But just like when I first, so again, like I'm from the hood, right? So I first get to college and I'm thinking I have to be this like professional person and let me get my (coughs) grammar right. And so when people would like ask me, oh, what you named it up? I would always introduce myself like, oh, it's Angel Brittany Burns Tucker. And my friends are like, bitch, what's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) It is a mouthful of a name. I mean, that's... They're like, no. So then one of my homegirls, she was like, we're not calling you that. We're going to call you AB. And I was like, okay. And it just kind of stuck. And then so it got to the point where even in class, my professors are like, "Mm, okay, what's your (laughs) name? And I'm like, you can just call me AB. And they're like, okay, cool. (laughs) Like... Well, because it, it doesn't, even in the email that comes up, it's usually Brittany. It's not it's Angel. Brit- yeah, yeah. So I don't even use Angel at all because it got to a point where people were only calling me Angel or Brittany. And I, or, so it's Brittany. And I would tell people like, oh, Brittany. And they would be like, Brittany. And I'm like, you're right. I said my name wrong. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Like, so then it's just, I just registered everything as Brittany because it's easier. Yeah. Go from there. Yeah. But. Well, I have to say, I had a friend in college. His name was Doug Fleischman. And I don't know, maybe he listens to this podcast. So hi, Doug. But his <laughs> first name was H. And I'm like, what? He's no, my first name is H. And it was like, basically, his dad had gone by his middle name. So it was his like, I don't know, Harold, Sam, whatever. And he was like, no, my middle name is Sam. And so he would get so mad at fighting with form people who were like, no, like we have to use your first name. And so basically when he named his kid, he named his, for the, for his first name is H like there is no other name. Like it's H Douglas. And so he goes by Doug, but I was like, you know what? I love when people take control of their own naming. You're like, no, it's Brittany. Thank you. <laughs> I know how to, I know how to pronounce my own name. Thanks. Every time they'll be like, oh, like it never failed. And I'd be like, no, it's spelled B-R-I-T-A-N-I-E. That's Brit. Right. Right. (laughs) Like, Brit to me. And you get to call it when people say, oh, 
Like, I don't care when I travel, if people say my name is Alejandra or my name is Alessandra, you know, I'll roll with it. But in the end, like, I was like, no, you know, I'm Alexandra. Like, my parents named me Alexandra. It was actually after the Russian Empress. So I'm going to hang on to my little Empress name and we're all going to call me Empress Alexandra, which is what my full name should be. But I totally get you call out your own pronunciation, which always disturbs me. Like, why don't we just always call like Italy, Italia? Because that's what Italians call it, right? Do you know what I mean? So I don't understand. I've always had that struggle. I mean, this is sort of, it comes into culture and how we sort of name things and how labels are important. And so if we're going into an era where self-identity and what your self-expression is, what other people are going to say it should go to how you pronounce your last name. It should go to your pronoun. It should go to everything. I really do now say when I'm talking in class, I really will say he, she, or they. Mm -hmm. Like I really, it isn't that hard to add the third pronoun. Mm -hmm. Everybody's, it's going to be so hard. I'm like, "Mm, I might miss it 10% of the time, but you know what? Like when it matters, all it takes is a little pause and Mm -hmm. then be appropriate. Exactly. But so you went to AB. So you just made things both complicated and easier for yourself. I did. (laughs) That's the Capricorn in me. You need to introduce yourself and introduce yourself with all of your accolades. And I don't want you to hold back. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It's like a whole list of. That's good. Let's do it. Accolades. Well, my name is AB. Burns Tucker. And let's see, I have my bachelor's in criminal justice and political science. I have my master's in criminology, law and society. And then obviously I'm working on my JD right now. I got a lot. I got, I'm like, I have a lot of stuff and then so little. It's what's important. It's all important. You said, let's like, let's unpack one thing. You said you're from the hood. I, you know, most of the people listening probably don't even know what you're referring to. That's, it's very LA. Yeah. But then if you say a hood in New York, you're talking about a different. It's different everywhere. Cause I've been in California hoods, Georgia hoods, Florida hoods, and they're different. Yeah. So I guess for me, it's, I guess people would say like inner city kind of. I don't really want to say low income, but I would say we were probably the top of the low income tier (laughs) growing up type of thing. So I have this balance between growing up in like areas that were low income, I guess I would say, like I grew up kind of in between those two areas. So for us, the hood is just, it's a community of people who like we grew up similar and we're probably not the community you would just be walking into, (laughs) you know, like, but it's our little community, right? So it's safe for us, despite what everybody sees on the outside looking in. But yeah, so I think too, people resonate with the hood and like, we have different struggles from like middle-class America, right? Did you grow up in a predominantly black neighborhood? No, I don't think anywhere in California is predominantly black. (laughs) I'm going to say no. And yes, I guess. So we are all kind of like in one area, I guess, but it was multicultural, which was kind of the benefit for me. And I didn't even honestly remember realize how multicultural it was until I moved to Georgia. And then I saw real segregation. I was like, oh, this is weird to me. (laughs) But so there were a lot of black people, but I grew up, there's Latinos, there were white people, you know, the white people you would think of like trailer trash is what they would call them. You know what I mean? But we're all from the same hood, from the same area, you know? But yeah, so that's one benefit is that my neighborhood was pretty multicultural for the most part. 
So I do kind of have that background, but we were poor. Long story short, we were poor. <laughs> well, I think like, I mean, I think Lenya relates to how she describes, I mean, that sounds, what you just described sounds very, when Lenya describes yeah. her childhood and where she grew up in New York, it sounds the same, multicultural, poor, but not poor, you know. Yeah. The only thing is that we didn't have any white people in my neighborhood. It was all Latinos and because I grew up in Spanish Harlem. Okay. So there was a lot of Latinos, but there was a lot of black people in this particular section. And, you know, and, but it was a lot of also, it was strange because, you know, I lived in these like co-op condo type situations and, but right across the street were the projects. Right. Okay. So that was me too. We're across the street and we did go to school with the project kids, but yeah. I, that's why I said I was at the top tier of the poor people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> exactly. Get the accolades. Give me my accolade. I'm top tier poor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, girl. Own it. I'm top tier poor too. <laughs> like across the street was the project and by god's grace we didn't live there okay we but we went to school with the project kids so we had the same energy in the yeah. same area you know? and some of them were your friends most of them was all of them was my friends actually yep. the project kids to fight yes and so you want to be their friends been against me so yep we're all friends around here uh-huh. oh my god i love it that's right where'd you go to underground again san francisco state that's why I knew I loved you. Mm-hmm. Bay Area. No, just <laughs> Let's just have a San Francisco love fest right this minute. So what was it like going up? So it's funny you say, oh, I had to speak differently. Did you really feel the pressure to do that? I did because I didn't know what I was walking into when I first went to school. So it was like. Because you grow up with the same people most of your life. We all speak the same. We all kind of understand each other. And then, so for me, just the idea of college was like, oh, sophistication. You know, I just had this whole crystallized view of what college life was like and how I had to be. And so I remember when I first got there, like, I literally thought, oh, let me try to speak proper. And I always tell you, like, I have a Stanford brain and Compton grammar. So say that all the time. You do. So I would just like, so I didn't want to feel out of place, I guess. But then quickly, I kind of had a group of friends that were like all from L.A. It was the funny part. There were so many people from L.A. and San Francisco. And we all had seemed to grow grew up around each other, but not with each other. And then that's when I kind of felt comfortable. Like, oh, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be here. It's OK. <laughs> like, I don't have to yeah. do all this. So, like, obviously, you know, I put my mask on when I talk to professors, but as soon as I walked out of the classroom, it was like, game on. Did you ever have a professor where you didn't have to have the mask on? No, not really. Uh, Okay, so towards the end, actually, because San Francisco has, like, an Africana Studies uh, program. And so those professors, I felt a little more comfortable with because they were Black. But all my other professors were white or, you know, they weren't black. I'll say that. Not all of them are white, but they weren't all black. So my black professors, some of them, I felt more comfortable not having to really wear the mask. But for the most part, I did. Yeah. I like how you call it wear the mask and not code switching. No, I don't know. The code is the same. The mask comes off. I feel like code switching is more like you're literally changing your personality. You're literally changing kind of like your 
Because if you think about a code, you think about coding and computers, right? If I change the code, I change the program. So I'm not changing my program. I may change how I speak to you or I may change how I address you or, you know, the conversation may be altered, but who I am, the code don't stay the same. <laughs> so at the end of the day, if you hit the wrong switch, you're still going to come out. <laughs> but Yeah, that is a really interesting way to, that is a really yeah. interesting way to do it. Can I ask, do you, how do you ever take off the mask in law school? Sometimes, depending on the topic. I try not to because I already feel like I have to work too hard. And so what I don't want is people to misconstrue my personality and think, oh, she doesn't take this serious or, oh, you know, why is she here? So most times I don't because ain't none of your business, (laughs) but (laughs) for Yeah. I mean, and I think that's fair. I mean, I, you know, truth, like some of that's about race, but some of that's just about law, the profession, the formality of that profession. I mean, I wear a mask, you know, and the reason that women bridging the gap is totally separate. It's not something I advertise at school. It's not something that's a part of it's because I want to not have my mask on here. And to the best of my ability, I do try to blur it there. I try to be my authentic self in school, but it, it, you know, it's not really fully possible because of the profession and because of the people that work there. So it just, it isn't a place I feel free. So I can't even imagine what it's like for a person of color or, or a black person in that very white world, because law is still very white, like in that very white world, like how you have to be. Yeah. I mean, I want to hear your whole story. It's not only about your story with your brother, Brandon, but I want to make sure we have time for that. So I want to like, cause I think it's really important for people to hear about systemic racism at the level of policing. And what's interesting is that we're in the wake of the George Floyd murder trial. No, it's not the George Floyd murder trial. It's the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd. We have to be really specific about that because. Yes, I agree. I agree. I agree. You know, it because um, George Floyd is not on trial, no matter what those defense. Right. I wasn't. Well, that isn't even the way I was saying it, because I would have said the Nicole Simpson murder trial. Like I would have been the victim murder trial. So I was like the emphasis being on the victim and not giving the murderer airtime. So I, I think the problem with crazy. that, I understand what that. you're saying. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think the problem with that is that because, I mean, the OJ Simpson trial was very racially charged too, right? Yeah, But absolutely. I think the difference here is that, let's be real, like the defense is trying to put the victim on trial. And so no, absolutely. That absolutely. Is more, yeah. So I think that is the reason why we have to be so particular about it because no, he's not on trial. I don't care what kind of drugs he did or what his background was like. You know, he's not on trial. So I take your point. I totally yeah. take your point. Can we just get to this point where I don't understand. I, I really don't understand this. And, and you two being lawyers, why is it that if somebody's being arrested or if there's some kind of criminal thing happening, why is it that we immediately, when they're black or brown, go to, well, they deserve to die. Like, or a woman. Or a woman. Like, they breathe. deserve to die. Why is it that we can't, like, criminals, you know, even if they did it wrong, death is not out, is not the punishment that the police have the right to give. And I don't understand where this idea came from. Where did this start? 
It started in slavery. It's still slavery. <laughs> it's the good old boys club. But I think too, it's because most people that think like that have never been around criminals or crime or associated, you know, in their eyes, right? So not the same. So of course, people feel like white collar crime is different from street crime. It's, it's just as bad. It's the same thing. People's lives get ruined. But I think that most people who think that way, there it's almost like you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And it's, these are two different swords, right? But if you're not familiar with that type of lifestyle or that background, it's easy to judge. It's easy to characterize. It's easy to, you know, point the finger and say, oh, well, he shouldn't have. It's just easier because you're not familiar with that background. There's no connection to it. And so you're analyzing it black and white as opposed to knowing what this situation actually is. But so, is, there's, is there's no situation in which a, a policeman should kill someone? They're trained to do that, right? So we say, oh, oh protect and serve. But when you look at it, like police are trained to issue fatal wounds, not just shoot you in your leg. You know, like their training is intense like that. Right. And they have came from a good place in the beginning. I doubt it, but no, they were slave catchers. That's what policing right. started from. Okay. So I just want to be clear about that. That's how I feel about it. Right. So, but again, what we don't want to say is there's that all cops are bad or police. No, are no, no, bad, no, none of that. So what I'll say is that it probably came from a good place of organization. That's what I'll say. Right. So it's easier. It, it's just more organized to say, we're all going to learn this way. But again, I think what it is just those racial discrepancies and that racial bias makes it even harder to deal with. I heard there were two questions in your question. AB answered one of them. Putting the victim on trial is the second question that you answered. And that's actually a much broader question, because if you think about it, rape victims often are put on trial. But also, by the way, subprime mortgage crisis, the people, the home buyers were the wrong ones. Enron crisis. Well, you didn't have to buy into Enron. The truth is, and all of that is definitely affects um, people of color more so, but the truth is the American myth, right, of manifest destiny is what causes this because it is the, we, we believe in the myth, in its myth of meritocracy that we can, we come to America and we make it, you know, and so we are scared Americans, the deep psyche is scared that things happen that are out of our control. So the reason why people don't vote their pocket, right, where you have all these poor white people who vote against their own pocket because shown time and time again, they vote to raise taxes on themselves because they believe in American exceptionalism. They believe like a religion that you know, it's not going to happen to me. It happened to that person. And rather than it have been an act of God or an act of, of a random act or the act of a bad institutional actor, they're like, blame the victim because then it doesn't have to do with me. That ethos is the American ethos. That's when I think about, when I think about what I want to dismantle, the bigger thing we need to dismantle is that because then we're not going to be able to answer all the other questions because in the end, we're always looking to blame the other. So, and that's a systemic problem all the time. We always blame the victim. We blame yeah. the victim in everything we do. 
And you're just seeing it play out on, you know, double fold because of systemic racism. You see it play out more and more, but it's baked into our evidence code. Like this concept of blame the victim is baked into all our laws. Got it. Wow. And that's, and when you start to unravel it, it, it is about race, but it's also about this, about poverty, about this, we all want to believe that it's really all about meritocracy, that we're not England. Do you know what I mean? That we don't have aristocracy. Like we want to believe that doesn't exist here. And that's, so I think it's a really deep, because I catch myself all the time saying, well, they made a bad choice. And it isn't even about little things. Think about anything that you do. You're like, something bad happens to somebody else. And you're like, well, they didn't wear a mask. They didn't do that. We're always looking to sort of shift to protect like the idea that anything could happen to us. Like part of that's just human psyche, but it plays out in really ugly ways when we're talking about race. And I actually think it isn't going to change in criminal. Like, I think we need a lot of work to do as a society. The last place we're going to have it make the change is in law. Like, I do think society is going to have to lead law in this situation. We have so much work to do in this country. That's uh. just, <laughs> that is just it. But so, A.B., like, we're talking about this. Why does a young Black woman decide to go to law school? Yes. I don't do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> because most of us what probably, was punishment. Right. Look, <laughs> most of us probably to be rich, right? Because we think this is where the money's at. But for me, I mean, I, I want to say obviously, but for me, when my brother went to prison was when I decided, okay, I'm, I'm not playing this game with the system anymore because I didn't realize how bad it was. And I think for me, I was just so curious and I wanted to be in the know about the law because I felt like I almost felt kind of left out. Like when I went to trial and I was like, I don't, I'm so smart, but I don't understand what's going on. Like, I don't get it. And so for me, it was like, no, I need to be in the know because this is a secret that you're not going to keep from me. So how does this system work? And so that was like why I went because I'm like, you're not going to pull the wool over my eyes anymore. When did your brother go to prison? So he was actually sentenced in 2010, but he was arrested. I want to say 2008. So I started college in 2007. And I think January of 2008 was when he was arrested. And he was 15. He was 15. Wow. So I was just like, and it was crazy because I had, I literally had just started school. So I started school in September of 2007. And so it was like early on. And I I was only a political science major at first. And this was like, when the education crisis like started getting really bad and they were cutting classes and stuff. And I remember when my brother first got arrested, I was like really confused and I wanted to know what was going on. And so I actually went to the Dean of my department and petitioned to double major because they weren't allowing students to double major at that time. And I went and petitioned and I was like, well, I really wanted this political background, but I was like, I need to know what to be prepared for, what to look for. So I petitioned and I had I had to have a meeting with the dean and everything. And then he was like, I believe in you and I believe like you're going to be able to do this. So I'm going to allow you to do it this time, you know? And so it went started from there and I just kept learning, I guess. I love 
owing the state money <laughs> for education. So did, were you honest about Brandon's situation or was it something you hid from people? Like, how does that work for you as a human navigating the world with somebody who was wrongfully convicted? And we'll talk about that soon. So in the beginning, obviously I thought he was going to come home. So it was more so like research for me and kind of knowing what was going on. And I didn't feel the need to talk about it too much because, you know, early on it was, okay, well, everyone's saying you weren't here. There's no evidence. So I have this, again, this crystallized visual of what the law was and, you know, how the system works. And so I didn't feel the need to share until about, until he was actually convicted because he went to trial twice. So by the second trial, I was like, what the heck is going on? Like, how does this, first of all, how do we even get a hung jury the first time? That was confusing. But then it was like, by the second trial, that's when I started speaking out and kind of asking more questions. And a lot of my professors at the time were attorneys or former attorneys or, you know, did work in the field. And so it more came out of place of like curiosity initially. Did you have a sense during that time for yourself of cognitive dissonance? This really can't be happening to me and my family. This is why, this is what drove me to actually quit, right? Was this like the cognitive dissonance I felt talking with clients is partly what led me to not be a lawyer anymore because I just couldn't handle the the empathy. Like I wanted to start a revolution. I didn't just want to solve the problem. Do you know it wasn't effective? So I'm just curious because it spurred you more into law rather than something else. So for me, I think it was just like an out-of-body experience almost. And I think that's my little brother. So and I, I'm the oldest of five, right? So I have three brothers and I have two sisters. I'm the oldest. So I've always kind of been the protector and you know kind of set the standard. And so it was an out-of-body experience where I was like I couldn't feel anything. I just had to do is kind of how I felt. And I didn't think anybody else was going to do. And I kind of didn't trust anybody else to do <laughs> what I knew needed to be done. And so the empathy and the emotional aspect, I had to kick to the side. I mean, I literally cried every day for years, but nobody knew, you know, like I was just, but it was almost like there's work that has to be done because what you don't get to do is take from me. So I kind of had to put the feelings aside and say, now, how do we handle this? Because I literally felt a bitch put you into this. And so you're going to have to be a bitch to get this, to correct this, basically, you know? And so I took on almost like that energy of just being so focused on the goal that everything else just took a back door after that. Wow. That's that strong Black woman sort of persona, which unfortunately is a double-edged sword, but like at some point it catches up to you. So at what point did it catch up to you that you're like, oh, you know, because it, 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 you can't go on life like that forever. I guess as I started to get older, things would trigger me that I didn't realize were actual triggers. And then I would feel emotional. I would, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I, I remember specifically like one time I was watching, what's the eight movie? You know, one. I don't know. It was one of those eight movies. Oh, Planet of the Apes? Yeah, it was one of those. Or I don't know. It wasn't Planet of the Apes, I don't think, but it was one of those movies. I don't remember. And so anyways, there was a point where the ape was in a cage and I broke down. 
I broke down. Like I was down. I remember I was downstairs with my roommates. We're all watching. And there was no reason to be upset. Like it was a good movie. And I saw the ape in the cage and he shook the cage. And I was like, I cannot. And I literally went upstairs and I was like in tears. And I realized, okay, I have triggers that I have to be mindful of. That's when I started realizing like, okay, when I start to feel like this is a trigger. So it was things like that. Let me realize I'm human and I do feel some type of way about this. Right. But again, there's work to do. So we're going to feel this for a second and now we're going to keep it pushing because there's still work to do. Do you feel like you still have work to do? Well, yeah. Until my brother comes home, the work ain't done. After that, then I want to sit in my beach house with my martini and my feet up. But <laughs> until so then. Lenya probably doesn't know the entire story. So I don't. So I want to know. <laughs> okay. So my brother was wrongfully convicted of murder and all these enhancements, there were gang enhancements and this on the third. And so basically he was 15 years old when this happened and he was tried as an adult, went straight to directly to adult court. And so basically what happened is like this jailhouse snitch puts him at the scene of the crime, basically. And he says that he watched the whole thing happen. He watched my brother and his friend plan it. It was supposed to be like the eve of their hood day. And so hood day is kind of like your founder's day, right? And so it was supposed to be the, the eve of their hood day. And they sit here and they plan this murder. And this niche was the only person to place him there at the crime. Nobody else placed him there. Most witnesses, if you listen, like listening to the testimony and even now reading the transcripts back, they refer to one person, like one actual shooter, not even two. But the story was that my brother had a shotgun and he hopped over two walls, two brick walls and around the corner and shot a shotgun, you know, towards someone never hit the victim, even if he did shoot it. Right. So there's two shotgun wads or at the scene. Can't even tell if they're new or old, but yeah. So that was the story. Jumped over a wall with a shotgun, never shot a shotgun before and never even owned a gun and shot the victim with his friend. and then. That was that. They never found the gun. Nobody else can say they seen him there. He was actually away in a whole nother city. So what happened is my brother had ran away during this time. And this is kind of where all the little details, the intricate details come in, right? So my brother had ran away from home at this time. And he was kind of living with his friend, his co-defendant. And so his Dad's side of the family had actually, right before this all happened, had picked him up and took him to Paris, California. And so he was actually in a whole different city when this happened. He was on MySpace. I don't know if you remember MySpace, but he was mm -hmm. on MySpace at the time. So all this came up in trial. And for whatever reason, the jury just didn't believe him. So they convicted him. But and he was sentenced to 50 years to life in prison. But if he wasn't in the same place, like that just doesn't make sense to me. Right. So also let it sink in that a 15 year old was tried as an adult. Let's just talk about the societal wrongs here. But that and, happens all the time. That happens all of that. I mean, I have an explanation. Well, I know, but I want everybody listening to get pissed off about it because the idea yeah. is that a 15 year old got tried in adult court and it started doing adult time and it's basically 50 years. That's that. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Just, I don't even care 
like the underlying, the, the fact that Brandon is wrongfully convicted is disgusting, but I just want to talk about the societal ill that this even occurred to a 15 year old is, is beyond the pale. It's just, we're not supposed to be a punitive society to children at all. And 15 year old, you are a child. So it, it, that's insane. Okay. I'm sorry. Off my soapbox. Off my societal soapbox. We don't view black kids as kids. Yeah. The adultification. Absolutely. Black people, period. Like we, and I think even in the black community is that because we have so many struggles, we're almost not even, you're not even given the opportunity to live a child life. It's almost like you're prepped as a child to be prepared for the things that you're going to have to go through as an adult. And I, I even have to talk to Santana's dad about that sometimes because he's, well, no, he, you know, we're teaching him responsibility and how to be a big kid and this and that. And I'm like, bro, he's three. <laughs> like, like, let a kid be a kid, right? Yeah. But because of how we've grown up and the struggles that we have, it's almost like you don't get the privilege of being a kid when you're Black. And so then when you go into a courtroom, right, you're not viewed as a kid. And the people who don't know you, the people who are judging you, right, your your triers of fact, whatever, they don't look at you as a kid, especially if the prosecution has painted this picture that you did adult things. Granted, we all did adult things when we were kids, right? All of us. And, And we messed up and part of learning, that's part of life. But Black people don't get that privilege of saying, oh, I'm a youth. It's, well, you made an adult decision. Okay, but what did I need to make that decision? (laughs) You know what I mean? There's not this same coddling of a Black kid that we would have of a kid of any other race or ethnicity. This is one of the main, like, underlying things that we talk about all the time, how Black people just aren't given the grace that um, white people are given, and then brown people aren't given the grace, indigenous people aren't given grace. We're like, we're just not given that opportunity to play out our lives, making mistakes and just being people without huge ramifications. And it's just, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Hypervigilance. We have to be so good and so brilliant and so excellent and so amazing just to get by. Absolutely survive. Yeah. Like survive. And I, I can, I tell people this all the time, like even with all my degrees, it's almost frustrating sometimes when I'm working next to someone with a high school diploma and they make the same amount of money as me. But if I only had a high school diploma, this opportunity wouldn't even be open to me. Right. So that's just how that's where the line is. You know what I mean? That's how blatant it is. It's really I feel like I should be at least worth what my student loans cost. That should be my starting salary. Period. Right. Everyone's starting bar is here as a black woman. Our starting bar is up here. Yeah. And that's just to even out the score. You know what I mean? And it's unfair because if you take people for who they are and their skill set and what they know and their passions and things, I think you get more out of people that way. But because there's this pressure of we have to be this in order to be anything, we just don't get that privilege. Like it's, it's just always, we're always working 10 times harder. And, and I think, again, that goes back to just the idea of being a kid. You don't have time to be kids because we got to figure out how to be adults before adulthood comes. Yeah. No, it's true. Well, and Brandon's had his whole adulthood pulled out from under him. Yeah, he's been robbed. And that's why I'm mad. 
Amy's going to be a lawyer. Like she's like trying, we're, Amy's been trying to find like a lawyer to, to do the work. And it's really hard to find lawyers to do this kind of work. And like Amy's going to have her Esquire pretty soon. And so then she's going to friggin' do it. Like that's, the, that's the next Ben Crump. <laughs> he's got everybody he's taking care of everybody right now oh, yeah. he needs help so ab let's get to it look call me call me crap <laughs> no, but seriously he probably will <laughs> and if he did i'll be right there on the other side of the phone let's do this you know but yeah i have to do the work so. What are some of the things that went wrong in your view in, in Brandon's trial? Like from the beginning to the end, what are all the things, what are all the, the crisis points where something should have gone differently in your mind? And this is partly as a sister, not just as a law student. From the arrest, they arrested him and they questioned him without any parent or any guardian or any adult there. I do remember my auntie saying she told him, don't say anything. Don't tell them anything. And the officer told her like, no, it's better if you speak to us type of thing. And so he obviously spoke. I mean, you're a young boy and there's two adult officers accusing you of murder, right? Like, I don't care what kind of stuff you're into. That's just, that's, you know, that could take anybody out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So let's start there. He shouldn't have been questioned, period, without an adult. The investigation was trashed. They did. I have read the investigation. There were other suspects that they kind of brushed to the side or didn't really look into or just the details were a little blurred, right? The jailhouse snitch part is probably the worst of the worst. You take someone with a record who's a gang dropout, right? Like he's a felon. He's a drug He's a drug addict, right? And even like ear to the streets was that he was the actual person to commit the murder. And this kind of stuff happens all the time. I mean, the eyewitness that put Geronimo Pratt in prison for 27 years was an FBI informant. And so that needs to be, that's a, look, that could be a whole nother conversation because I can go on and on about that. But just even that, you know, you, the court didn't take the testimony that Brandon's co-defendant tried to give, that Brandon was not a part of the crime. That was the DA filed a motion, and I think they excluded it as like hearsay or something like that. I, I can't remember verbatim the motion, but that was excluded. But it was okay to listen to a jailhouse snitch with a felony, with a criminal background, right, who right. potentially was involved in this crime. And initially, he was a suspect in the crime. Let's start there. Right. Yeah. And it's okay to listen to what he has to say, but it's not okay to accept testimony that Brandon wasn't there and he wasn't a part of this. Like at all. So that, that was a problem. You have police officers get on the stand and lie. And I mean, blatantly lie, blatantly lie and say they did certain things. They asked certain questions. They did certain research. Like one of the Officers got up and was like, oh, yeah, MySpace came and trained us. And so this is how we know how to use MySpace. Well, I've researched and MySpace didn't come train y'all. You didn't get no MySpace training. How about that? Yeah. You have police officers that are actually gang members, right? That have a beef with the people in that area for, for his, you know, stuff that you doesn't come out in trial, right? 
but you have those people testifying against someone they don't know and they don't care. The detective called my mom once about Brandon and he called her like in the middle of the night. I think she was sleeping. You know, my mom was a single mom. She actually worked in the prisons at the time. She was a psychiatric nurse in the prisons. And so I believe she had like late shifts or something. And so he called her once in the middle of the night about Brandon and never called again. Never, nothing else to try to verify his alibi or anything like that. It was just like this tunnel vision. Like we had someone, it was an easy capture almost, right? Like it was an easy capture. And so now we're going to go with it and we're going to build this story and we're going to use whoever can build this story for us. And I think that's what happened. And I truly believe that the district attorney, she wrote my brother to the bench. And so that makes me mad too. But I believe she knew. Did you hear this now? The DA who did this is now on the bench as a judge. She is now on the bench. And so I would love for her to swear me in once I um, <laughs> graduate from law school. Just love it. Let's take this oath together so you can see what you did. But <laughs> I think she honestly knew that Brandon was not involved, but she didn't care. She wrote him to the bench right after, you know, she got her seat. And so there's just so much <laughs> that they did and. The thing is, it's hard to go back and say, this is what they did wrong. Or sometimes it doesn't even matter. That's the hardest part for me is like some of the things that they did wrong that I want to address and say, well, this is what you did. It doesn't matter. Almost. So, I mean, part of this is that we hold these jury verdicts so sacrosanct, right? So all of a sudden then trying to overcome them is just a huge burden. And then even when I hear you know, listening to this, like I'm issue spotting, right. As you're telling me the story and it's not like a full story. Like I don't have enough to really issue spot, but in issue spotting, which is something like Lenya we do in law. Cause what I love, this is what I love about the law is that everybody thinks laws about memorization and knowing stuff, but it isn't, it's training of your in- intuition mm-hmm. and it's rewiring your brain. So you can feel when there's a snag and a fabric Mm-hmm. And then you can you and then you research to see whether it's really going to unravel or whether it's just a snag. So that's what it's sort of that's how you're trained. And so I'm listening to this and I, I hear a snag. Right. Mm-hmm. So the snag for me was that they didn't let in the evidence as hearsay. Mm-hmm. Right. So that feels like there's a snag there. Right. So I would want to go and do some research and figure out like what was the exact motion. What was the exact proffered testimony and was there a mistake? But here's the shitstorm of the appellate process at the criminal level that pisses me off is that even if it's an error, that's not going to be enough to get Brandon a new trial. It would have to be like, and I don't know what the standard of review is on this offhand, but it would have to be an abuse of discretion or it would have to be arbitrary and capricious or it would have to be such an egregious error that the jury might have decided differently. So it's not just a hurdle of saying, oh, there was a mistake made. It's Mm got to be that it's such a big mistake that we can already like rewrite history. And the idea is that's ridiculous, right? Because when we're talking about somebody's freedom at stake, like my issue has been like, you shouldn't always have to have that high level of standard of review because we're talking about a person's life and we have a and and between systemic racism also just like how many things kind of can go wrong at trial and because we're just talking about putting somebody behind bars and because of our sentencing laws we're so punitive in this country 
and because our prison situations are completely not humane. Like you put all that together, I just don't think it should be this hard to say we're gonna, we wanna revisit this, but we do. When we say, oh, this feels like it's so ripe for an attorney to find, this is why you're like, every attorney is gonna be like, I don't know. Like that's, you know, and that's this hard thing that, that A.B. and Brandon sort of face going and forward. Even with that, right, like, I think people will stray away from touching it because Brandon had a prior incident. So what happened is that with the same co-defendant, Brandon had gone into an altercation with some people in the neighborhood, and they got into a fight, and that there was a gun involved. And Brandon was arrested, and he pled guilty, and he took a, a juvenile assault with a deadly weapon. The co-defendant, so the first trial that they had, the DA actually charged the co-defendant with attempted murder for that incident simultaneously with the murder. And so Brandon was almost tainted by that because that was basically how she used Aiden and abetting, right? That's how she painted this picture that Brandon was an aider and abetter because you have an incident, I think, and I think these two incidents happened within maybe a month of one another, but you have him and they don't say he took a juvenile ADW, right? They just say he was a part of the attempted murder, right? Because they're the same incidents. And so now the court and the jury, and even like when I read the appellate opinion, right? It says Brandon was convicted of attempted murder. And I'm like, that's not true, <laughs> right? Like he took assault with a deadly weapon as a juvenile. And, and it was a juvenile case, so it should have stayed in juvenile, right? Yeah, exactly. But it shouldn't have also been blocked because I thought that when you, I thought that children's convictions were sealed. I thought so too. But again, it didn't come out that he took a juvenile assault with a deadly weapon. The only thing you hear is that he was involved in the attempted murder with the co-defendant. So the co-defendant, the first trial, it was a hung jury for the murder and the co-defendant was found guilty of the attempted murder. And he got 26 years to life for that. By the second trial, she pled the co-defendant out the week into trial, the second trial, and gave him six years for voluntary manslaughter. She offered Brandon nine years. And I was like, hell no, like you didn't do it. So why would you take nine years? Obviously, 13 years later, I'm like, <laughs> right, like, dang, but no, we were like, okay, cool, because just all the so heartbreaking. It is so heartbreaking. It, it's terrible. So all the evidence pointed to the co-defendant. And so at that point, we were even more confident because every testimony that came out other than the informant was that the co-defendant was involved. The co-defendant did it. He had the gun. He tried to sell the gun. All of you know, nothing said Brandon but the but the informant. And so we were really confident. But what happens is when they pled the co-defendant out, they don't tell the jury why the co-defendant's not there anymore. So now Brandon, now by this time, 18, right? Now he doesn't look like a 15-year-old anymore. He's a big black man now sitting next to his attorney by himself, right? And, and yeah. so you're hearing yeah. attempted murder now plus murder. It's a lot easier for a jury to say, yeah, he probably did that. Or even if he didn't, he was probably involved. When I was hearing you say this, it, what's crazy to me is that everything you still talk about, it sort of, it reeks of reasonable doubt, right? So yeah. I remember 
being at Mule Creek Prison when OJ, the jury verdict came in. And what was amazing is that every single lifer that I was standing in, I was like standing in the visiting room. I had just gotten like food for somebody and I was standing in the visiting room and everybody was talking about it. And every single lifer in that room, because it was salsa C or whatever, they, they were just like, I am innocent. If he is innocent, like I, there is reasonable doubt for me. And in the truth is that was totally true. What killed me in that time was I was like, well, technically, I think the O.J. Simpson trial was decided correctly. Mm-hmm. The jury decided correctly that there was reasonable doubt. And I was like, but that's the definition of what reasonable doubt is, which right. means that what we've been doing in the past for so many is, no, it's a gut check. He could have done it. And then we vote convict. That's, you know, so while everybody else is like, oh, no, he should have gone away. I'm like, no, more people should be walking around outside of prison. You right. know, that's sort of how I sort of see it because it, it reeks to me of, but I agree with you. That's the perception. Do you know or remember the racial makeup of the jury? The first jury, we only had one black woman and she's the one who said at the end, she was like, I don't care what you say. I'm not changing my mind. That boy didn't do that. The second jury I don't remember there being any black people on the jury. I'll be honest. I think there may, there was like one guy who was not white. I can't say that for sure, but I don't remember his exact nationality, but I don't believe we had any black people the second time around. How is that even possible? Have been, I don't understand. Like there has, that's not, that's not a jury of his peers. So if there, it's almost looked at if they live in the area, that's your peers, yeah. right? Like it's not, so we want to, you want a diverse jury pool, right? Because to me, you want people who understand your background, who will be able to look at the little, you know, intricate details, right? So that black woman was a saving grace for us because some of the things, some of the characterizations that they tried to give Brandon, she could see through them. Yeah. When you don't have anyone like that to have your back on a jury, that's a problem, right? But the, and as far as I understand, what you can't do is purposely eliminate black people. But if you don't have black people on a jury, that's not wrong. Right. So don't make it obvious that you're getting rid of them for whatever reason you're getting rid of them. If it's obvious and the motion comes up, then, you know, we'll have the conversation there, but a jury of your peers in law, black and white, is just, they live here. (laughs) So those are your peers. Well, it's also just, a, it's just the nature also just of who ends up on jury duty generally, right? Ends up to be more conservative retirees. Like that just tends to be, just think about it. I mean. Jury duty, remember? Yeah, but did you sit on the jury? Well, I never got called. Right. But so the idea is, but so many people who do get called in, they're working you know, I always thought about this in San Francisco because people would say San Francisco is so liberal. I'm like, no, it isn't. Not at the jury level. There's so many things that isn't liberal about San Francisco. But I got to say, once you got to the jury, everybody who was liberal managed to not be on the jury. The only people left were the super really conservative jurors. So like the idea of it was crazy how it wasn't a jury that represented either 
the diversity that existed in San Francisco, but the or the political diversity of San Francisco, but it certainly wasn't necessarily a person getting the jury of his or her or their peers. Like it just didn't it didn't exist. And well, they make that's it so hard true everywhere. But they make it so hard. Like uh, one of the things that bothered me the most during the jury duty uh, situation when I got called is that you know it's punitive. I'm not going to make any money while I'm doing this, right? And I, I mean, I'm not going to take vacation time to go on jury duty. They don't pay you, but they want you to be there. Like it's it's all day. It's it. it there's just so many things wrong with the way jury duty is. Oh so, no, absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, like a black person who's got to work to pay, take care of their family can't afford Absolutely. to do that. There's no childcare option. This is, it's like the worst situation, which I guess, you know, works to the systemic racism. Absolutely. Of course. It's just another chink in the chain. It's just that other chink in the chain. Yeah. But it totally is. And it is for actually, I mean, the truth is it is for, and that echoes into everybody's life, but everybody's like, well, and this is where then you victim blame. Well, then don't do anything wrong. And then you don't have to worry about it. That's, but that's, that's the other chink in the chain. Like when you're talking about it, like, that's just another, that's another problem, right? Because I, of course, like, how would we make this over? You know, we say all this bullshit about it. It's the greatest, you know, you know, you get to vote and you have to do jury duty. And you have to pay taxes. Those are the things that, you know, you have to do as a citizen. And we should, and we hate paying taxes. We all have that in common. You know, we all fight for this right to vote. And so this is your duty. The duty is to do jury duty. And the idea is, but that's not true because of how we have our lives. And so the idea is we don't require, the state doesn't pay your a real wage. They give you $5 a day or whatever it is. That's not even enough for parking. Some employers give you jury duty off, but they don't pay some yep. employers, you know, won't give it to you, but in the gig economy, in the gig economy where we work in, where so many people are independent contractors are just trying to figure out hourly, like how to work on their own, they, they, they just don't get paid, you know? I mean, so like, how would a person who's a gardener or a housekeeper, like, how do those people actually do jury duty and not just lose money? Like, the state would have to say, okay, we're going to pay the equivalent of your salary. And then, you know, and then, of course, rich white people don't want their taxes up. It goes all into the same pool of problem that you don't get a, a, a real jury of your peers because people are, and I'm guilty of this too, of trying to get out of jury duty. And the idea is like, I've always been really honest. Like the last time I got called for a criminal case, I was like, I, I will not believe a police officer up there. And I got screamed at by the judge. I mean, she was like, what's your name? She wrote my name down. She's like, but you're a lawyer. I said, well, I'm a former lawyer. You're a lawyer. You're an officer of the court. I said, well, I'm not here as an officer of the court, your honor. I'm here as a citizen. And I'm telling you, I'm not going to believe a police officer. And, you know, and they kicked me off. And there was this piece of me that kept saying I should stay and jury and nullify the jury. Like I should say, cause I also, they, I think somebody said something and I said, I believe in jury nullification. And, and there was this piece of me. I was like, I should just stay and just do it. But the truth is I was teaching. I was like, I won't be able to make my class. Then how the hell am I going to do that? I'm only on an annual contract at school. Like I'm not tenured. Who's to know I'll have a job next year? And then my own fear of my own livelihood got in the way 
And I, and of course I said the things I said and I knew I'd get kicked off the jury and I did, you know what I mean? Like it's, you know, it's that's, and if I'm not going on the jury and I'm thinking of myself as a pretty civic minded person, like what the fuck is happening to other people, mm-hmm. you know? And I keep promising myself the next time I get called, I'm going to stay. Yeah. Well, I think that woman put my name on the I list and I'm not are. ever getting called back you to a shadow ban from juries for life. <laughs> I can guarantee you that they have I your just... social shadow ban. Okay. <laughs> like... The thing is though, that I had two jurors follow me and say, you really spoke up. Like I did affect two other people into saying, you know what? Like it is a rigged system. And I'm like, yeah, it's friggin' rigged. And, but okay, so you're gonna, but you're going into this, you're work, you're working right now, you're interning with the Innocence Project. And I mean, if, even if Brandon got out tomorrow, would you still follow this path? Do you feel like this is your calling? Honestly, I ask myself that every day and I still don't know. Like I have, and we kind of talked about this, like I have political aspirations. That's, that has always been my thing, but I feel so ingrained now. And I just feel like I have all this knowledge and background. It's almost like, how do you not keep going type of thing? There's just so many Brandons, unfortunately. And he's like my prized possession, right? But there's just so many of him. And now I feel like I've built up this callus emotionally to even be able to deal with it. So I, I just, I don't know, but I do grapple with it every day of, can I still do this? Cause some days, even with Brandon, I don't want to, I just don't like, sometimes I read the transcripts and I'm just sick to my stomach. Sometimes I sit in class and I hear arguments or I hear, I read things the court says, and or I read the court's analysis and I'm just sick. Like I'm sick, you know? And it's, do I want a lifetime of this? Because that's what it equates to. It's not just going into court and arguing and black and white and leaving and going home. It's, it's more than that to me. And it's like, for the rest of my life, do I want to feel like this? Or can I even stomach getting beat up like this every day? Because that's how I feel, you know? So I don't know. I I do know I'll be involved in the law in some capacity. I don't know if this will be the work that I do for the rest of my life though. I think you're going to end up being a professor. And then I also think that you're going to end up being an elected official. I was just going to say, no, you're going into politics. Faux show. I hope. Yeah, that's my goal. Hopefully. If if my Compton grammar can, you know. I don't think your Compton grammar should matter. No, I don't. And also it's bullshit. You've been saying this to me for three years now and it's bullshit. She's just a fine writer. I just don't know what she's talking about. So I, you know, I'm my own worst critic though. So I think, you know, that's what it is too. I read other things and I'm like, mine didn't sound like that. (laughs) Or when I hear people speak, I'm like, I don't think I sound like that. So that's, but yeah, I don't, I would love to get into politics. And, And one reason is because I feel like that's where I can effectuate more change because it starts with politics, right? You think about, we vote in our sheriffs. We vote in the judges that sit on our county benches, right? And most people, I didn't know that until recently. How about that, right? So you go to the ballot and you're so quick to mark Obama 
but you don't realize everything else that's around it. Right. And so down ballot battles. Right. And so it wasn't until recently. And and now I've started to, I've become more vocal about it because I realized like, that's where we can really make change. Because if I vote for, if we vote for the judges on our bench, we might get a judge that looks more like us. Right. We might get people that are more on our team if we take the time to do that. But when you, when judges, when the seat is open and you look at who goes to, to attack that seat, right. And then you look at the population of people that they reach out to, to vote for them. They not calling me. Now, every number in the world was calling and texting me when they wanted Biden to win the presidency. Text me when it's a judge seat open to, I want that same energy. Right. Yeah. So I can make a decision about who's judging me. Yeah. Because now, you know, even going back to Lisa being on the bench now, like you messed up royally, sis, but now you're judging others. You don't have good judgment, period. Yeah. But you're a judge making decisions about other people's lives. Well, if you would want to be on the bench, can I ask you a question? And the quicker way to get on the bench is to be a prosecutor than to be a defense attorney. Would you be a prosecutor? Yes. And I actually had this conversation with Brandon. And the reason why, and it's funny because one of my best friends, she's a prosecutor in Georgia. And I remember when we first met, I was like, girl, mm mm-mm you are the devil. I'm good. (laughs) Right. But what she said, and she's black and she's from the hood too. We have a similar background. And she was like, yeah, but I get to decide if I'm going to give Pookie 10 years or five years now. Right. Or I get to say, I'm not trying that case. Yeah. It doesn't fit. So I'm not trying it. Right. And so that's what kind of changed my perspective about the the prosecutor's office is that we shy away from it because we want to be these gladiators, but you almost kind of be the spook that's set by the door and get in the door. Right. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I mean, like part of changing the system from both ends would be having a juster system rather than a competitor system. right? Right. So in the sense that prosecutors get ahead by the number of wins, which already, even if you are the best hearted prosecutor, you're only going to get promoted if you have wins. Mm-hmm. So if the system is set up to to have you to have you kind of end up like corrupting the job, right? Because you're not going to be thinking straight. Yeah. The second thing that happens on the defense end because the defense end is can be deplorable in the skill level is that you have to protect the right to appeal you have to cover your ass on everything, which means that a lot of things that don't really have. So for instance, Lenya, you're going to file a motion to suppress the evidence on every single search, every single detention that ever comes down just in case. But the idea is that a lot of those detentions and or pat down searches might actually be lawful. But the idea Mm -hmm. is you're going to, you're going to protect the right to appeal by just filing paper. But the idea is those papers are junk, which is that crying wolf thing, right? So then you file a hundred and five are really worth it. Those five are just going to get rubber stamped because at the end, it's kind of the credibility of the office isn't very strong. Like you will hear, I when I was part of the defense bar, it was kind of, a, you almost had to be apologetic about it. 
Like I would, you know, cause they were like, oh, you must be a shitty attorney. I'm like, no, I'm a fucking great attorney. Like I'm not apologizing for the fact that I'm doing this, but it's, you had to sort of say, but I'm not one of those, you know, but that's horrible because the idea is like, it's the system is so broken that there's no way for nobody can stand out and do anything different. It's so hard to do that because the other idea is that the pay isn't bad, but the pay doesn't pay back student loans. Uh-uh. And so everybody's like, oh, it's a cushy government job. I was like, yeah, but nobody's paying back their student loans on those jobs. So like, it's not, it's just such a system set up for all the lawyers to fail. So, I mean, I couldn't have been a prosecutor, but I like one of my favorite former students, Darius, he's, he is like my favorite. And Darius, if you're listening, you know, you know, we have to have drinks. But anyway, I love Darius. He's one of my favorite students from all time. He was in intro legal writing back a hundred years ago. And he came in, he was like, I'm going to be a defense attorney. And then I remember when he turned and he went to the DA's office and it is like, it is crazy, but he's a DA now. And, but I do think of him as a righteous DA. Like it's good that he's in the office because he is helping make righteous decisions. He is, he is representative of a black man as a DA, as a model for other young black attorneys. And so in the end, I like, I've made my peace with the politics of it for me personally, because it's not my life, it's Darius's. But I mean, the idea is I do think you're right. Like he went in AB for the same reason you're thinking you would do it too, is because you can affect change from that inside. And I think that's important. That is so important. We need that. I agree. I was actually supposed to be hosting a program this evening with, with the recruiter for the DA's office. And that fell through, not because of me, but on the other end. But anyways, that was one of the things we talked about. And I was very candid with her, you know, before we even thought to do the program, I'm like, I can't say I'm pro prosecutor. I mean, I'll open the door. So students have an opportunity to hear, but I can't say that. And and that was one of the things she explained to me too, is, well, what do you think you can do when you get here, right? It's fine to be a good a defense attorney, but where do you think the power really is, right? Where do you think the change is really going to start? Do You're playing chess, not checkers. So do you want to get ahead? You know what I mean? Do you wow. want to out, you got to outthink your opponent, right? So I have been behind all my life. I don't want to be two steps behind anybody anymore. And it's almost as a defense attorney, that is what you walk into, period. You are behind. The prosecutor gets to decide when they're going to try this case. So what that means is that she could have had that case or he or she could have had the case on their desk for three months, investigating, looking at facts, looking at things. And you don't get it until after they, they file the complaint and say, we're charging you. They are already three months ahead of you on the investigation. So now as a defense attorney, now you playing catch up. And if you work in the PD's office, you already got 50,000 cases on your desk that you haven't had time to, you know, look Absolutely. into. Right. So it's, do I want to be in that position? I think I would do well either way. But when you look at it like that, is that where my best hand is going to be played? And sometimes I think, and I'm like, no. It's not. Now, I'll probably argue circles around a prosecutor all day, but is that where my skill set is going to be best applied? Or is it better for me to say, well, I'm not charging you for that? Yeah. I mean, I had a friend who was a prosecutor in New Jersey. She's retired now, but that is sort of what I loved about her, her tenure as a prosecutor was that she was a really just prosecutor. You know, and the truth is she was a prosecutor in New Jersey and I was still a defense attorney when we were both coming up. 
And the truth is, she would be crazy. I would say, oh, I'm defending this case. And she's what the fuck? Why is anybody even bringing that case? Mm -hmm. And she was like, nobody would bring this case in New Jersey. I'm like, welcome to supposedly non-conservative California, like where it is. That is just not. Like everybody has this idea and I'm like, no, man, if you want to be a criminal, go live in New Jersey. It's much better. Like generally speaking. Like, legit, because even with Brandon's case, like I've talked to attorneys, you know, his case was in San Bernardino and obviously I'm in LA, but I've talked to so many attorneys from LA who we wouldn't even try that. Like the fact that she offered him nine years, let me know how weak her case was, you know, type of thing. And it's true, but Juries don't think like lawyers. Yeah. No. So, you know, and, that, if you that, have, and if you have prejudiced people, they're not going to tell you prejudiced people don't tell you they prejudice. Yeah. No. And then people don't even understand their own implicit bias. So when you're describing an 18 year old man being tried, an 18 year old man who is now a big black man versus a 15 year old boy, and you're like saying, this is what they're, this is how it's looking. You know, because the idea of like everybody always feels like it's so false, but like those small cues, like I remember like in law school having it occur to me, like I was in, like I was clerking for a, a criminal defense office and they had an armor full of suits. And I was like, why do you have an armor full of suits here? And they were like, for our clients. Because the idea is, you know, you think of the subtle bias. If you come in a yellow, if you come in in an orange jumpsuit, everybody's, oh, they're associating you're guilty. You belong there, victim blaming, right? And then with the idea is put you in a suit that fits, you know, the idea is that you go in and it looks different. I was like, and that was like, it was fascinating. And I'm glad I had that experience, but the falsity of it all, like that sort of was like, okay, nobody's interested. I really had that feeling. Is anyone interested in truth here? That was sort of my... Is anybody really interested? And I just felt my idealism kind of come crashing down where I just really the first three years out of law school, like I was just in a massive depression because it was just, I had tried life in DC where I remember like researching the Community Reinvestment Act and I was doing like work on the Community Reinvestment Act and it was about access to banks in poor neighborhoods and because instead of check cashing and having free checking accounts rather than all this costly checking accounts and how so many poor people are locked out of banking. So I was dealing with this in ni- 1989. And I remember I had a, you know, I was, I was a young, I was just a young assistant back then. So I remember one of my jobs was like to go through the filing cabinets and update everything. And I remember finding something from 1972 when the act first passed and the argument was the same. And I'm like, holy fuck. And it was like, again, it was the idealism of my life kind of crashing down upon me where I was like, it's 1989 and we're still having the same fucking fight. Like we're not actually moving forward. And it really was. And that was that first thing where I started thinking, maybe I'm going to go to law school. That was the law school moment. You know what I mean? And then in law school, I had the, oh, fuck, I need to be a revolutionary or a social worker. Like those were the two thoughts. You know what I mean? Like I'm either going to be a revolutionary or I'm going to be a social worker, but this law thing, I'm not going to have the balls for. And then, you know, and now here I am hiding out in academia, but it's... (laughs) Wait. Yeah, but you're nurturing the next generation of revolutionaries. I hope so. You're, 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 
Yeah, no, like speaking to Professor Detail all the time, there's plenty of times when I text her and I'm like, I would rather strip than do this. Let's be very clear. I would rather swing on a pole and pay an attorney to do this than deal with this. And it's just her ability to kind of talk me out of it and be like, that's cool and all, but you know, you have these skills, right? You know, you can do this, you know, take a breath. And it's that gives me kind of the energy to move forward and still fight the good fight. So she's not really hiding as much as you're just like dropping little, you're creating little use, right? There's more use with more bravery. And with that nice compliment, so I can feel good the rest of my day, we're going to, we're going to end this. AB, like let everybody know the website that you've set up so people could read more about Brandon's story. I've really been on AB to like write and we're going to work on this. She's emailing this to me and I've told her I'm going to rewrite it in like glorious. I'm going to, I'm going to copyright it for her. We're going to put it on the website about Brandon's story so we can really get it out there. And I hope in the next year we can find an attorney who's at least willing to help AB take it a little bit further. And I do find that in cases like this, it often is like one, like until somebody sinks in and sinks his or her teeth into it, we just need to do it. I've got some ideas, so we need to get this done. So AB can do other things. Like, so we got to get Brandon home so AB can do her other things, not being on a pole. (laughs) So so AB, give us the website. So it's freebrandonburns.com. F-R-E-B-R-A-N-D-O-N-B-U-R-N-S.com. And we're still working on it. Like you said, we're still getting everything together. I'm balanced and being a mommy and law student and all that. But I do post regularly on my page, on his social media. He has an Instagram page as well, which is free Brandon Burns. And then I just started a YouTube channel, as you know. And so I talk about his case and, and go into a little more details there too. So If you check out Hustle to Esquire on um, YouTube, you can get more of his story there too. And I will put all the links in the show notes. All of it in the show notes. Yes. So you'll have that. And thank you so Um, much, AB, for being on. You you make it, you make me teaching like worthwhile. That's all I have to say. And when you came into my class, like that first time, (laughs) like I just was like, yes, like we were going to have some fun. AB is kind of fearless in class. Nobody else would offer an answer be silence and then I would look a little bit to the left and she's like okay I'll talk <laughs> and then she'd just talk and she would often have the right answer so it was really so everyone yeah. listen to Women Bridging the Gap where you can find us anywhere you find your podcasts womenbridgingthegap.com you can listen to us there feel free to email us we'll put it in the show notes below to show you want to hear if you want to come on we love having guests come on because it's about passing the mic we are on instagram and we're on facebook and we engage quite a lot on facebook so if you join our women bridging the gap group we would love to hear from you we are looking for people with interesting stories who want to talk so please give us your ideas thank you bye